Hashtag blessed. Maybe some of you remember that Twitter campaign a couple years ago that's still active today. If you were feeling particularly blessed in any way, you could post whatever content you'd like on Twitter and tag on hashtag blessed at the end of your tweet to show that you were feeling blessed that day. For those of you who are fairly new to Twitter, a hashtag just signifies the theme of the content that you're talking about on Twitter. However, let's just say that many people went a little bit overboard on how they understood themselves to be blessed. Let me give you a little sampling. Did 200 push-ups today. Body's feeling great. Hashtag blessed. Great round of golf today. Shot even. Hashtag blessed. Target's having 40% off on kids' summer clothes. Hashtag blessed. The ministry I was, a for, I was formerly a part of in Louisville picked up on the madness and decided to have a contest to see who could have the best hashtag blessed photo and post on Twitter. The winner of the contest won off of a picture with Louisville, the Louisville Cardinals 2013 National Championship point guard, Russ Smith. And then at the end he put hashtag blessed. But oh wait, they actually got that championship removed from them this past year. Hashtag not so blessed. <laughs> now some were a little more realistic and posted pictures with family and their pets and hashtag blessed onto that. However, as you've probably noticed, is that what being blessed really means? In an article in the New York Times, one woman wrestling with the term blessed was being, and how it was being misused, wrote, there's nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life. But calling something blessed has become a go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, to fish for a compliment, to acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited or purposely elicit envy. It's the humble brag. I think she's on to something. So what exactly does it mean to be blessed? Does it mean that we're feeling lucky when something good happens to us? Or is it something completely different? Well, in our text this morning, the psalmist shows us what it really means to be blessed through the life and picture of the truly blessed man. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 1. You can find it there on page 448 in the red seat back Bible there in front of you. And as you're flipping there, this morning we begin a new three-week series in the Psalms to kick off the summer. And over the next three weeks, we'll be diving into the first three Psalms. Psalm 1 today is looking at the way of the righteous. Psalm 2 will be preached by Cole Pinnock next week on the reign of God's king. And Ryan Martin will pick up Psalm 3 and teach on the salvation of God's people. And in each of these psalms, we'll be looking at what it means to live God's way. And so with that, let's take a look at Psalm chapter 1. Let me read the text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, 
He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think the main idea of our text this morning is this. If you're going to write down anything, this is it right here. Short, sweet, to the point. Main idea, I believe, of Psalm 1 is that the Lord will identify with those who identify with him. That's what I think the point of this sermon is, the point of this psalm is. The Lord will identify with those who identify with him. And those who identify with the Lord embrace his word, point number one, and enjoy his favor, point number two. Those who identify with the Lord will embrace his word, point number one, and point number two, they will also enjoy his favor. So point number one, embrace his word. If you're new to the Psalms this morning, what better way to start than with Psalm 1? Psalm 1 is one out of 150 Psalms that are organized into five books that make up the book of Psalms, or what we call the Psalter. The Psalms give us a look at the very heartbeat of God's people. And though they're words to God and about God, they're also God's word to us. They instruct us in how to worship God in praise and thanks, as well as how to respond to him in grief and sorrow. They're effective at taking the various emotions that we experience in life and then shaping those emotions to the truth of God's word. They give us language to express our deepest pains and our greatest joys. And though these songs and prayers of God's people are diverse in their emotion, they're unified in one thing, and that thing is praise, which is exactly what the Hebrew title of the Psalms means. It means praises. Whether it's a psalm of lament or a psalm of wisdom, like Psalm 1. The psalms take us on a journey through our diverse experiences and bring us to the destination of praising our God who reigns over all things. And our psalm this morning, along with Psalm 2 next week, serve as a kind of gateway that opens up to, uh, to us many of the major themes of the Psalter. As one author put it about Psalm 1, he says, Psalm 1 is the text upon which the whole of the Psalms make up a divine sermon. In other words, the rest of the Psalms are singing some variation on the tune of Psalm 1. And you'll notice in the Psalm, you'll notice in our Psalm this morning that there isn't a title or historical context that we get dropped into, like in Psalm 3 that Ryan Martin's going to pick up and preach in a couple of weeks, where David is fleeing his son Absalom. And this is probably just another indication that Psalm 1 serves as a preface or an introduction to the Psalter. Instead, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It teaches us that the key to the blessed life doesn't come through the word of the wicked, but through the word of God. Its purpose is to warn us of the destruction of the wicked and then to move us to emulate the blessed man. So with that, look with me there at verse 1. 
Notice how the psalmist begins. Blessed is the man, or taken another way, how blessed is the man. The word blessed is a word of congratulations. Jesus uses the equivalent of this term in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11. It describes the state of happiness or well-being that characterizes God's people. And that's exactly who the blessed man represents. He represents all of God's people, whether men or women, all who are a child of God. And so right out of the gate, the psalmist shows us that in God's eyes, there is no moral neutrality before God. There's no mushy middle ground where we can be impartial toward God. There are the wicked and there are the righteous. There are only two ways to live. One leads to prospering, the other leads to perishing. And he's wanting to motivate his audience to be like the righteous, blessed man. And what better way to encourage someone to adopt a particular way of life than to show them what it's not. So those who are truly blessed are those who deny wicked ways and delight in God's word. Those are two subpoints under point number one. They are those who deny wicked ways and delight in God's word. Notice the downward progression of evil in verse one right there. It goes from walking to standing to sitting. To walk in the counsel of the wicked is to let their evil advice impact how you live. To stand in the way of sinners is now to associate with them in their sin. And then to sit in the seat or the assembly of the scoffers is to publicly identify with their ways. You move from just taking some casual advice to then associating with their behavior to finally wholehearted allegiance to their company. And not only that, but the slight nuance between the wicked the sinners, and the scoffers is one where you move from a one-time criminal to a career criminal to then arrogantly refusing to listen to God's instruction and then actively mocking those who do. These are the kinds of people, like the kings in Psalm 2, who set themselves against the Lord and the Lord's anointed king. They're practical atheists who live as if there is no God. They're those who exploit the marginalized. They throw off God's word, seeking to invent truth for themselves and try to live by their own authority. And sadly, these people were inside and outside the camp of Israel. The psalmist shows us that in God's eyes, there is no moral neutrality. But what's the point of this progression? What's the point of it in verse 1? Friends, I think that it teaches us that sin is deceitful. Sin begets sin. It's not to be flirted with. It's to be fled from. It causes us to think that we're for God while slowly hardening our hearts against God. That's why we need to be careful if we're walking with sinners lest we start standing with them. We need to be careful if we're standing with them lest we start sitting with them. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, yes, Trey, but didn't Jesus sit with sinners? Wasn't he accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors in Luke 7, 34? And I would say, yes, he did. But he didn't sin with sinners. 
He sat with them, but he didn't sin with them. The sitting in verse 1 is describing being one of them. It's publicly identifying oneself as one who is opposed to God. However, Jesus sitting with sinners isn't about Jesus publicly identifying himself with the wicked, but rather publicly engaging the wicked with gospel love. Notice the public aspect of this. We're called to live among sinners while publicly identifying with Jesus and not them. And this is what it means to walk in the way of the Lord in verses 1 through 3. This is why holiness is less about seclusion, just isolating ourselves off from the rest of the world. It's less about seclusion and it's more about separation. Holiness is the art of being set apart from sin to God. As our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to, to Christianity, it's becoming less and less socially advantageous to be a church-going person. It has never been easy to be a Christian, but at other times, it's actually been easy to be popular as a Christian. And now being a Christian in America is a social liability rather than a social asset on a resume. Friends, we're under more pressure than ever to privatize our faith and to isolate ourselves off from the rest of the world, to just be Christians behind closed doors or just on Sunday mornings, but not Christians in public throughout the week. However, private Christianity is an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. The Bible knows nothing of a private Christian. Our faith is personal. Sure, it's personal, but it's not private. And when we read this psalm, we cannot escape the implication that our identification with the Lord must be public. That what it means to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, that's what it means. It means not to walk in their counsel, but rather to walk publicly before the Lord. Because you can privately identify with Jesus. You can privately identify with Jesus, but publicly be walking standing and sitting with sinners, those who identify as being God's enemies. We're called to publicly live out our faith because God identifies with all who publicly identify with him. But friend, I wonder if you found yourself privately identifying with Jesus, yet publicly walking, standing, and sitting with his enemies. Beware of underestimating your proclivity to sin in adopting the lifestyle of the wicked. We are not called to linger in our sin because sinful habits, as Pastor J.C. Ryle once put it, are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. So it is with habits. The, the older, the stronger. The longer they have held possession, the harder they will be to cast out. Custom is the nurse of sin. Every fresh act of sin leads to fear and remorse. It hardens our hearts. It blunts the edge of our conscience. And it increases our evil inclination. Brothers and sisters, let us not be deceived. Though this verse may speak of the wicked, we also are prone to sin's deceitfulness. Don't forget that in Israel's camp, there were those who threw off God's word and weren't truly his people. And maybe sin for you 
right now feels like that unstoppable stone rolling downhill. But before that stone picks up any more steam, I want to encourage you to turn from your sin and unload that heavy burden upon Christ to seek refuge and rest once again in God's anointed Son. Don't forget that Jesus said that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. Instead, be like the blessed man of Psalm 32, who didn't cover his sin, but he confessed it and he is forgiven. Remind yourself of your identity. Remind yourself of who you are. You've been forgiven in Christ, and he stands right now, interceding before the Father for you. Turn to him. Turn to him again. We're called to be vigilant in fighting and fleeing sin, yet we're also called to be intentional in loving the lost. And a wonderful way to think about more about how to, to engage the lost is, our, is through our six-week ABF class starting on July 15th on neighboring. I want to encourage you to go to that ABF class starting on July 15th to learn more about what it means to love and to engage our neighbors with gospel love like that of Christ. Those who are godly, the happy ones, don't identify with the wicked and walk in their ways. Instead, they identify with the Lord by delighting in his word and meditating on it day and night. Look with me at verse 2. The psalmist tells us that the righteous man or woman delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. The law of the Lord right there is speaking about God's instruction or his direction to his people as seen in all the scriptures. His instruction stands against the counsel of the wicked. And yet why does the psalmist say God's law is a delight? I think we naturally just want to ask that question. Why is it delightful? What makes it delightful? Is it because it's just beautifully written? The prose is incredible. Is that the only reason? Well, no. The word of God is a delight because it reflects the very character of God himself, who is supremely delightful and glorious. It's delightful because the God who creates and redeems has spoken and revealed himself to us that we may enjoy fellowship with him. We take pleasure in his word because in doing so, we are taking pleasure in God himself. Yes, this is counter to how many view the scriptures and how maybe you're viewing the scriptures right now. Often we either view his commands as killjoys and try to throw off his constraints and live according to what's wise in our own eyes, much like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. That or we try to strive for conformity to God's commands, thinking that salvation comes through our rule keeping. Both of these are seen in Scripture in the way of the wicked, whether that be with the Pharisees or with the nations. Instead, the psalmist is showing us that delighting is a matter of the heart. Don't miss this. What captivates our very hearts will shape our very lives. No longer will God's commands be killjoys or just a bunch of do this and don't do that. Instead, they will be the means of God's grace to enjoying him and truly living the blessed life. And those who delight in his word, they're going to meditate on it day and night. And by meditate right there, the psalmist is speaking about not emptying your mind of content. 
as so many non-Christian systems think. But it's about filling it with biblical truth and then letting that truth steep like a bag of tea on our hearts. The longer that we let it steep, the stronger its flavor becomes to our taste. It's digesting God's word slowly and taking time to let its flavor marinate on our hearts so that we may enjoy our Lord. And this isn't done periodically. It's done day and night. We've seen this kind of language before in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Moses has just died. Leadership's been turned over to Joshua, and he's to lead God's people into the promised land. And three times, God comes to Joshua, and he says, Be strong and courageous. Well, how in the world is he supposed to be strong and courageous, leading these wild band of people into a land that wants to kill them? Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Joshua isn't to read it periodically and just be familiar with it. He doesn't kind of just skim over it in his Bible reading plan in the morning when he wakes up. He's regularly to have it on his mind. Whether he's stuck in a traffic light, changing a diaper, doing dishes or laundry, he is regularly rolling it around muttering it upon his mind. God's instruction fuels his affections and then moves him to action. And this isn't just for leaders like Joshua or maybe even the elders of this church. It's for the blessed man who stands as a representative of all of God's people. This is for both men and women, young and old. We are all to be men and women of the word. Delight and meditation are two sides of the same coin that characterizes all believers. So no matter what your theological training is, whether that's a a seminary class, a BSF class, an ABF class, or this sermon this Sunday morning, regular, deep meditation upon the truths of God's word is to be had by all. I love how one famous pastor once put it. He said, raking is easy but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. And friends, meditation is the marveling of those diamonds you find in God's Word. This is why we need to read for breadth and depth. Reading reading the Bible in a year is great. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord for Robert Murray McShane and his Bible reading plan. But if you don't stop to linger over a text and to interrogate it with questions, then you're just raking leaves. We need both. Meditation isn't about just checking a box, but about communing with our God. That's what it's about. And maybe this is new for you. I just want to encourage you to grab another brother or sister here this morning and ask them to meet up over coffee or a meal or during your child's nap time to read the Bible together. And if you find yourself in a busy season of life, whether that's working long hours or laboring at home with small children, this could look like writing a verse on a three-by-five card, keeping it with you throughout the day. When you wake up at night to nurse your children, when you do that, constantly going back to that three-by-five card of the scriptures and meditating upon it and rolling that verse around upon your mind. Friends, if this is true, think about this. If this is true of the psalmist who's writing to us under the old covenant, 
how much more ought the full revelation of God in Christ captivate our hearts with the one that all the scriptures speak of? How much more ought they to captivate us now? We live on this side of the cross. Praise God for that. The godly identify with the Lord by refusing to walk in the way of the wicked and instead delight in his word. And as a result, they enjoy his favor. Point number two. They enjoy his favor. If verses one and two were about the lifestyle of the wicked and the righteous, then the rest of the psalm shows us the results of that lifestyle or its fruit and its future. Verses 3 and 4 serve as two contrasting pictures of the righteous who are fruitful and the wicked who are fruitless. One is prospering, the other is perishing. The psalmist tells us that the blessed man, in verse 3, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, I don't know about you all, but full green, leafy trees around here aren't that remarkable right now. They're everywhere. I've got them all over my front and backyard, and they're not anywhere near a major water source. They're just near rocky soil and rocky ground of Fayetteville. But when you think about this illustration, you've got to consider its context. The context in this psalm is speaking about the dry climate of Palestine where water can be a luxury at times. And notice that it says that this tree is planted, or literally transplanted, by streams of water. The picture we get is that of a gardener who transplanted a tree from a dried-up place and then placed it next to, literally, irrigation canals, as one translation put it. And one can't help but to see God as the divine gardener who transplants his people by streams of water where they will flourish and bear much fruit. God's people bear fruit in the presence of his instruction and they delight and meditate on it day and night. The point is that the man isn't blessed by his own attaining of this fruit, but is blessed by God's grace, his undeserved favor. In giving in giving these streams of water, they're blessed because God has given these streams of water to them in his instruction to him that he may bear fruit. Fruit is born in connection to God's word by God's grace. And the great news for us on this side of the cross is that in God's grace, his word became flesh and it dwelt among us, and it caused his law, his instruction, to be written on the hearts of all of those who've turned from their evil, wicked ways and find refuge in him so that we may now walk in the way of the righteous. We've been grafted into the tree of life from Revelation 2 and given to eat of it in the paradise of God. Listen to the words of Jesus from John 15, verses 5 and 6. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
Without Christ, we can do nothing of any spiritual good. But one of the ways that we abide in him and he in us and bear fruit is by delighting in and meditating upon the word day and night. And we bear fruit only by God's grace who unites us to that vine through repentance and faith. Two other things I want you to notice in this picture of the tree. Number one, fruitful trees bear fruit even when they're in a dry and desolate climate. The Lord says in, John, in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, who is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Friends, this picture, it reminds us that though the heat of anxiety, the heat of loneliness, the heat of depression, of grief and loss, though it may bear down on you, you can still prosper and flourish and bear fruit. And oftentimes, the greatest fruit is born in the most difficult of seasons. To prosper isn't to always be on the mountaintop, but often it can be when we're posted up in the valley. And it's often in those valleys that we see the Lord most clearly. And yet when we're in those valleys and the heat is pressing down on us, remember what the Lord says in Jeremiah and in our passage this morning. Trust in the Lord. Meditate on his word day and night. And then next week we'll learn about taking refuge in him in shelter amidst the storm. The second thing I think that we notice from this, from this picture is that the fruit or prospering of the tree isn't for itself, but is for others. It's not for itself, but it's for others. The prospering of verse 3 isn't speaking about a materialistic health and wealth prosperity, which is self-centered and set on self-fulfillment. Rather, the prosperity of this tree is to benefit others. The prospering, as one, as one author put it, reflects the wisdom of a life lived according to the plan of the giver of life. So friends, are you seeking to bear fruit for yourself or for the benefit of others? In what ways are you seeing that happen in your life? You've been blessed by the grace of God in the word of God for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now the psalmist turns right here to verse 4, to the very opposite picture from the tree. He says in verse 4, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Unlike the righteous, who are fruitful and benefit others, the wicked are fruitless. Instead of being firmly planted by streams of water, the chaff are rootless, they are unstable, and as the band of Kansas once said, they are dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. During the time of harvest in Palestine, the harvesters would gather their grain and place it on the threshing floor. And then they would crush that grain up with a threshing sledge. Then they would grab their winnowing fork and toss that grain up into the air to separate the heavier grain from the dry chaff, which even the slightest wind, while it's being tossed up, just blows it away and would later be burned. 
This is the picture of the wicked. Those who reject God's instruction and who are fruitless as a result. Like chaff, they're useless and will be, bo- and will be burned. As we've already seen this morning in Matthew 3 where Jesus is the judge. He has his winnowing fork in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The way of the wicked leads to impending doom. And let's look at that in our final verses, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation, nor the sinner in the congregation of the righteous. So those who stand in the way of sinners, verse 1, will not stand in the judgment before God nor before the congregation of the righteous, in verse 5. Notice the very public nature of all of this. No one is going to be hiding on that final judgment day. Everything will be exposed. The wicked won't have a leg to stand on, to make a case before God, because it will already be made by their way of life. Nor will they have a place among the righteous because they sat in the assembly, in the congregation of scoffers and publicly identified themselves with them and against God. And what's the destiny of these two ways? Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked go from rejecting his instruction, which results in fruitlessness, And then the consequence of that is judgment and perishing. But don't miss the first time that the Lord is mentioned in our text and that the Lord is mentioned in this psalm. The psalmist says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. To know doesn't mean to just kind of have a knowledge about a particular way of life. I mean, after all, God knows the way of the wicked. He knows how they're living. Instead, It means to know intimately, relationally, to embrace and to care for his own, to watch over them, to protect them, and then preserve them to the end. To know is to identify with his own. It's to identify with his people as his own children. And yet, friends, the drama of this text is that none of us come into this world as the blessed man. None of us do. All Christians are ex-enemies of God. And it's not just that God will identify with us because we don't identify with his enemies. But the shocking thing about the gospel is that God will precisely identify with his ex-enemies. Friends, every one of us in here, myself included, is either a present enemy of God or a former enemy of God. If you're a present enemy of God, your judgment day is still on God's calendar. If you're publicly identifying with the wicked, God will eventually publicly identify with you in judgment. Turn from your sin in rebellion against God and trust in the true blessed man himself, Jesus Christ. He can become your righteousness and you can live the blessed life by being united to him. He was the sinless one who didn't walk in the way of the wicked, who delighted in the Father and meditating upon his word day and night, even on the cross. In all that he did, 
in his life, in his death for sinners, in his resurrection over death, he prospered in every bit of it. And it's only through faith in him that you can ultimately be known, publicly identified with, and enjoy the favor of the Lord. But if you're a former enemy of God, an ex-enemy, because you've come to faith in his son, your judgment was 2,000 years ago. It was 2,000 years ago at Calvary. You're the blessed man or woman who is to wholeheartedly delight and meditate upon God's word and to bear much fruit. That's who you are. So let me end with the words of Jesus from Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, (coughs) not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, all the good deeds, all the good deeds in the world don't distinguish the righteous from the wicked. Rather, it's God's grace that knows the righteous through his Son. So friend, do you know the Lord? Or better yet, does the Lord know you? The Lord will identify with those who identify with his Son. And those who identify with his Son will embrace his word and they will enjoy his favor forever. Let's pray. Great God, we praise you that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn favor with you. But yet you've shown us grace in causing us to be united to the vine, your son. You've transplanted us from the dry climate and placed us next to streams of living water. Lord, we praise you for this. Lord, help us to embrace your word by denying walking in the way of the wicked and delighting in your word day and night. Lord, help us be reminded that we enjoy your favor right now, that we stand as those who are not condemned, but those who are pardoned. Lord, help us be warned to not give in to the deceitfulness of sin, but rather to walk in the way of the righteous all of the days that you give us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.